This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. It is mayhem here in the studio. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, we're a bit late starting because those bloody doctors wouldn't move their cars. Anyway, uh, this is our last show for the year for 2018. Uh, so we have pretty much everyone we can fit in the studio. In the studio, uh, Chris KP snuck in. I wasn't aware he was coming. but uh, Security is very lax. Yes, it's lax. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Dr. Crystal is sporting a Santa hat. It's science on your radio. <laughs> Dr. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Laura, virus-free Dr. Laura. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. It's Shane. Nice to see you virus-free. And Dr. Linden. Good I got morning. Them all. Well done. <laughs> I, I know we're missing a few people. Uh, Dr. Jen and Dr. Ewan couldn't come in and Dr. Catherine couldn't come in, um, but they send their best. And Liv is doing a Twitter feed. She's sporting the new haircut, which is um, yeah, pretty cool for summer. Uh, we're going to do something a bit different today. Each of our panellists has brought in their favourite pieces of news from the year. So we're just going to cycle through those. Some of them will be no doubt funny because Chris is here and he usually can't be serious. Uh, some of them will be some amazing stuff that we've seen throughout the year. And um, hopefully they won't all be from the last two weeks because it's been a big year in science, but we've got a lot of stuff. So stick with us uh, for an hour of science. We're going to go around the room. Chris, do you want to start? I can, yes. But, but uh, he- heaven knows I can. You want to say, do you, you know what I mean. It means you're starting. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, I was going to say, that was very polite of you. You're inviting me to start, yeah, yeah, but I have no choice. Yes. Yeah. Um, look, I was going to... I don't. This is actually from the last week or so or two, so I apologise. Um, but it's one of those things that you hear a little bit about frequently and it's easy to forget how incredibly mm. awesome it is. But Voyager 2 has just left the oh. heliosphere. It's left the it's, building. Yeah, it's, it's out yeah, of there. Yeah. It's in interstellar space. What is cool about that is that we know where it is still. Yeah. In fact, there are people in Australia who are actually tracking it. So mm. we're, we're like its, you know, pen friend. <laughs> we're its radio friend. But it's still out there going into, well, almost literally, um, uncharted space. Can I Certainly just say Voyager, infrequently charted. Voyager 2 is proof that they don't make them like they used to. Well, certainly Voyager 3's done nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We never got to Voyager 6. Um, The the lifespan of Voyager 2 was never supposed to be this long. No, no, it wasn't, Every extra day we get is such a bonus, right? It's squeezing every little bit of just power alone. Mm. Just squeezing Mm. power, let alone any sort of functionality. So I reckon that is There's nothing quite like a nuclear power source. (laughs) <laughs> they just keep on going. I mean, That's but you're, you're right, Dr. Lin, because the, just the craft itself has been through such an uncharted region of space that no one really knew how it would go uh, in, you know, for such a long period. And, and to be fair, you know, these things are made to have a certain lifespan, and then beyond that is a bonus. But the power source is such that it won't run out anytime soon. So it's, mm. um, it's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. And That's still taking measurements. Yeah, it's still doing stuff, too. It's not, yeah. just, it's not on holiday. It's still working. It's still working, <laughs> which is just... Truly awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yes, so uh, now it's out there, man, doing its thing. Good luck to it. Yeah. Anyway, Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. So I actually loved a story that was from February, so much earlier in the year. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's part of the NBPSP program. Oh, what? that old chestnut. Yes, that just the National Bee Pest Surveillance Program. I, I still need an story. explanation. Sentinel hives. This is our first line of defense in Australia against bee parasites. Oh. And and so um, we're the only country that doesn't have the varora mite, which is a, a terrible blight on bees. And, and, and if you don't know this already, bees are really very critical for pollination for a huge number of agricultural crops. Um, we keep bees at different farming sta- farming areas to pollinate. But more importantly, I mean, 
this is a huge industry. In other countries, they actually drive beehives around the country just to pollinate different fields, yeah. nuts. I'm but, pretty sure they do that in Australia as well. <clears throat> yes, but we take better care of our bees. So while we transport our bees, we don't have nearly the same problems in beehive collapse. And because we don't have varroa mites, our bees are much healthier. And so how do you protect against keeping your bees mite-free? And what we have is we have these things called sentinel hives. They're located at most major ports. And there's honey beehives in the middle of shipping yards hmm. where and they're designed to actually bring up in, <laughs> infected bees that come in on ships because this I didn't realize how bees get from point A to point B is they'll come across a ship and then they'll just link up with the closest hive they find and so these sentinel hives bring in the overseas bees and those those hives actually have pest strips in them to kill the mites and they monitor them every six weeks so we have an entire bee defense strategy and is, it, is it a bit like trying to clear customs if after you've been to Bali like you know they kind of kind of the bees come yes, in but, and they kind of get but, like put through the yeah, hive but they, they catch the bees this is and, you know, somebody snuck something through in their hand luggage. They're actually going to get the bees and clean them out of mites. And then if the hive does get infected from mites, they, 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 they kill that hive. But this is one of the big things they do. And the other thing this the National Bee Pest Surveillance Program does, this is pretty cool. They also are trade support because they send healthy Australian queen bees to other countries. Oh, really? We're, we're, you know, as an export thing, because we, we, we breed healthy bees, so we share them with the world. So we send them to where they're going to get mites. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. As long as we don't bring them back, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, sacrifice yeah. those bees. I, I have to say, I wasn't aware of this because one of the things that we're really bad at here is when you know ships and so forth come in, letting them just expel all sorts of crap from all over the world, especially into the ocean. Yeah. So I'm surprised that the above sea level stuff is so sophisticated because we really are bad at it for everything else. But we're actually well. One, this tells me two things. One, I really thought he wasn't listening to my news in February. But two, um, <laughs> February, dude. You mean but, like but, February, as in last February? Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks. Um, someone <laughs> just chirped in. Uh, anyway, uh, but but the other thing is, yes, it's, it's actually pretty amazing that, you know, in terms of, of biosecurity for quarantine, this is something that is taken pretty seriously and that we've mm. been really successful at, that we seem to be holding the Voromite at bay, which is impressive given that it's in most every other country, including ones close to us. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's important stuff. My entire knowledge of bees comes from the movie The Bee Movie. No, actually, that's not true. There was, a, there was a really good documentary we reviewed on the show a couple of years ago about bees. I'm trying to remember the how, name how of it, yeah. but it was fabulous about um, bee husbandry around the world and how it's um, collapsing and so forth. So anyway, good stuff. Uh, Dr. Crystal. It's been a very controversial year, 2018, but I think um, I think not, not the internet um, kind of exploded in uh, around May around a, um, an auditory clip. I don't know if you remember it, but there was an auditory clip that was online where when you listen to it, you either heard the word Yanny or Laurel. And not since the blue gold dress controversy of 2015 has the internet had so many strong opinions on mm. what this auditory clip was actually. Do you remember it? I was trying to. Um, I, I, I didn't. I, I missed to, this one. I must have been elsewhere. Let's see if I can get it on my Listening brain. to Ray's B News. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they'll come through. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so um, so yeah, so you either hear Yanni or Laurel, and so when I played this um, in in uh, to my family, my uh, my husband and I were just like, "It's Yanni, it's Yanni. How can you hear anything but Yanni?" And my son's like, "Mommy, what's Laurel?" 
why is uh, that person saying Laurel? And it's just like, what's going on here? Like, I don't know if you guys remember it. You know, what, what, what about you, Lyndon? Did you? I just heard Yanni. All right. And Laura? And I heard Laurel. Oh, right. Okay. So in this room, we've even got some division, you know, Yanni, Laurel. And what is it? And it turns out it's actually an auditory illusion, which is it's not a real speaker. It's actually a, a created sound. Where, um, where if you if you have more uh, higher frequency ranges, you're more likely to hear uh, Laurel. And if you have lost those higher frequency ranges and you're relying on the lower frequency, you you hear the word Yanny. And so actually, it's kind of almost like a bit of a pitch um, and hearing test where you can actually tell if because hmm. as you get older, you lose your higher frequency ranges. Yeah, I was going to say um, it's an age detector. It's a bit of an age well, detector. Also, rocker thing. Yeah, Maybe I was just so been too exactly. more exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah, who's yeah. The, who's the party animal? Yeah. So you're telling us you're only 32 years of age. Can you just repeat what's said on this uh, recording for me? Oh, really? (laughs) So so my my five-year-old was just like, Mommy, why is he saying Laurel? And it's just like, no, it's really clear. And actually, if you pitch shift the sound or if you turn the bass up or if you you manipulate it, you can actually hear those different different frequencies. But I thought it was a fantastic example of an uh, auditory illusion. Well, that's what I was about to ask about the the speed the speakers because I actually heard both depending on which device mm. I listened Ooh, to it on. Yeah, so yeah. when I listened to it through my Bluetooth speaker I heard one thing <laughs> and then when I listened to it on my phone I heard another yeah. and when I listened to it on my computer I heard another. Were they at different times of day when you were feeling like a bit older and <laughs> just <laughs> Maybe tired? so. First thing in the morning it was Laurel. Maybe, maybe it was just maybe that day. day when you were listening was in fact just a critical age point. Maybe it was. And later in the day your hearing <laughs> just dropped out. <laughs> but no it went back and forth. Okay. Seriously depending on what so I'm just wondering whether, you know, they <laughs> investigated whether the speaker, you know, the, what what yeah. the equaliser was doing, yeah. whether that yeah. made a difference. Dr. Yeah. Crystal, I'm interested in where this sound actually came from. Did it come from any kind of professional auditory kind of examination source? Or was it just someone being like, oh, I made a weird sound with my computer? Yeah, do you know what? I, I, I have not traced the source of this. Hmm. I should do that right now. I should always always look up your primary sources. So, yeah, maybe that would be. I mean, you can imagine this would be pretty easy to do, right? I mean, you, you work out what the drop-off in frequency is for people at certain ages, and you just put this right at the edge of that. So it's you're either on one side or the must, other side. But it must be a weird collection of noises that they made. Like if you if you've gone mm. to the effort of doing that, just right. thinking if you're going to do that, then you probably make it a swear word and then not a swear word <laughs> yeah, or something. No, I think it was an audiologist, not a twelve yeah. year old boy. Okay. It's like, <laughs> that's really what I'm asking here. <laughs> or a twelve year old boy who wants to be an audiologist. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so, so for me, uh, so you know, CRISPR babies are controversial, yeah, but really, Yanni or Laurel was the biggest controversy of twenty. And probably got more hits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or, or as I say, probably did more damage to the environment because we know how much the internet does. Oh, God, dang, yeah. it started. Three, triple, Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It is the last show that we're putting on for 2018. <sighs> Sorry, just a sigh there after uh, so many great shows. It's so much fun. We, um, we've had something like 115 guests this year, all pretty much from Melbourne, a few from the other states and a few from overseas, but the majority are all scientists from Melbourne, which is pretty cool. Anyway, we're going through a whole lot of news from the year. Dr. Ailey, what have you got for us? I have something very exciting from mid-year. In mm. fact, I'm going to call it a uh, mid-year Christmas present, Christmas in July present, because it actually broke on uh, to the 25th of July, this story. So mm. uh, this was 
in my mind, one of the biggest stories of the year. And this was about liquid water on Mars. Oh, yeah. Mm. So in Mijia, there are a few stories that kind of went around. And in the last couple of years, we've found, um, you know, there's been evidence of kind of these really uh, salty molecules, kind of, kind of like those, you know, those gel things that you get, the gel packs that you get to keep things dry that yeah. kind of soak up the, the, mm. the humidity in, in food and stuff like that, food packaging. So that was last year we found out about that. We're like, oh, that could hold water, blah, blah, blah. But in July, this thing called MARSIS, one of these great acronyms, which stands for the Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding Instrument. Mar- basically, Mars. It's a, yeah, basically, it's like Mars a big... Yeah, Mars. Mar- Mars. Thanks, Chris. Mars-ish. Yeah, you heard that because you're older and you're hearing <laughs> exactly. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. This yeah. is another Laurel and Yanny thing. Oh, dear. Um, anyway, so mm. this thing, Marsis, basically it's like a big ultrasound machine, right? So it's a big radar. It looks into the ground and it can look quite deep. It looked into uh, across the south pole of Mars and it found a bed of liquid water about 20 kilometres long and about one metre deep. So this is not directly observed. This is observed by this radar, but this is the first evidence of actual liquid water on Mars. So it's under the surface. It's under the surface. So um, here on Earth, we actually have an analogous... Um, kind of situation. Lake Vostok. Exactly, Lake Vostok. So in Antarctica, below Vostok, below the ice cap, there's actually a huge underground lake about four Mm. kilometres below Mm. the surface. Well, many lakes, actually. Yeah, 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 that's a big one, but there's actually, I think there's like tens of them at least. Yeah, that's right. So it looks like there's a similar situation here, at least that's what the evidence Mm. from this radar shows. But it's the first evidence of actual liquid water. And, of course, this is really important because liquid water... Water as we... Uh, fuel. W- well, fuel, <laughs> that's right. And mm. water as we know it is essential for life, mm. okay? Well, mm. life as we know it, obviously. Um, so, yeah, first evidence of liquid water. What does this mean for the rest of Mars? What does this mean for, for going to Mars in terms of... of I mean, this is probably very salty water, so it's yeah. not it's not like it's a lovely freshwater That's lake okay. or anything like that. Boil but it's, it up it's and <laughs> enjoy. Yeah. Indeed. So, yeah, so that was a big story for me for yeah. this year. And uh, this was the Italian Space Agency, actually, yeah. that found this. And we should just be clear. I mean, you can't have liquid water on the surface of Mars, so... If anyone yeah. thinks you're going to find liquid water no. on, on the current day surface right. of Mars, it's, maybe in the past, that's right. but the current day surface of you Mars, all you see is yeah. the indications that there was probably there was, water once, right. yep. and we see that because of the um, the deterioration of the yep. surface due that's to water right. flow. Mm-hmm. Because it's too because hot, the, cold, no, because the, cold, cold and dry. Yeah, the atmosphere is too thin, mm. yeah. Yeah. so water would boil off mm. um, immediately. So you know, if you lower the pressure, the boiling temperature mm. goes down, mm. and, um, and it would just boil off and yeah. go off into the into space yep. so yeah it's super cool yeah subsurface water yep. yeah it's up there with um you know some of saturn's moons and stuff yeah and exactly yeah. exactly yeah. I, so. I, I'm, I'm over mars now because saturn's <laughs> mars saturn's is too moons. generic saturn's really. the new mars <laughs> well in enchilada enceladus enceladus yes uh, being my favorite solar system object now because it's the most Does that mean likely any place moons to found are going to be called burrito and like quesadilla I hope so. I hope so. that'd be great yeah I, I don't i don't think we should let mars go by just yet i mean two weeks ago we heard wind yeah, the sound yeah. of wind cool. on mars that yeah, was pretty yeah, cool yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. this year was also the year where cassini um yes. went went, went into, down saturn? into saturn and mm. i just thought those were some of the most beautiful images and, yeah. and it, that was an incredible end to an incredible journey and and the interesting thing about that is would they have done it if that moon of Enceladus had not been discovered in the way it's now known to possess a subsurface liquid ocean? Mm-hmm. Because the main reason they did that to Cassini was to make sure there was zero chance of it impacting 
expecting that moon mm. at any time so that you could later explore it for life, which is really, really cool because Cassini, you know, is the size yeah. of a bus. It could do some damage. And, um, yeah, anyway, very cool stuff. Mm. All right. You're good? All done? Ailey? I'm done, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, nice. What? Mars, Mars water isn't enough well, no, for you? Well, no, I understand. <laughs> Oh, sorry, it's just liquid water on Mars. That's it. Yeah, I thought you were going to tell me they, they found a Toblerone there or something, you know. Oh, and a kayak. Yeah. Yeah, a kayak. <laughs> yeah, a kayak. aliens. Fake news. Yeah. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, fake news. Miss Virally Infected. <laughs> well, what have you got? I thought it would be completely amiss if we're talking about the top breakthroughs of 2018, not to mention CRISPR. Now, I know we just heard this from the team Radiotherapy. This is the gene editing tool, which is creating so many medical breakthroughs. And just two weeks ago, we spoke about the world's first gene edited babies. Huge story. It's like there's been so much scathing criticism from the science community. Actually, the Chinese scientist who delivered that news, who's now reported to be missing. Exciting stuff. I'm Has he really? Him. I yes. didn't know that. It's, ex- so, it's so exciting. I can't stop. Really? He's like just gone. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's, uh, was last seen... Uh, um, In China? And uh, has not uh, resurfaced. Really? Yeah. Keep following that story in the news. So, so um, the world's first human genome baby, um, edited babies were born um, just a few weeks ago, at the end of November. But another huge story um, from the CRISPR revolution was that a few months ago, um, CRISPR was used to break the rules of reproduction, enabling same-sex animals to give birth um, to offspring. So in this study, CRISPR was used to edited, edit embryonic stem cells so that we could use embryonic stem cells from a female mouse, which was implanted then and put together with the egg of a female mouse, and they came together don't need sperm anymore. Two women can make a baby now. And these mice had viable offspring and their babies have now made babies. Now, what doesn't work is man plus man. Chris, you look really upset. (laughs) (laughs) You look really upset, Chris. Well, not really. Uh, I I mean, you know, that that mouse and I were just friends. Uh. (laughs) So they also tried taking embryonic stem cells from a male mouse, putting that together with male sperm, and then putting that into an empty egg that was devoid of genomic um, Mm -hmm. information, and that didn't produce viable offspring, unfortunately. But um, two, two, two mamas, two mama mice making viable babies. Wow. So I understand, I mean, because when I heard about this story, I was thinking, why? Why do you want to do that? And it sounds like one of the reasons for this study was so they could understand why it is that we have to have sex. Is that right? Have to have sex. Sorry, husband. (laughs) (laughs) Speak for yourself. I think it was was working out what's possible. So CRISPR was used to delete a bunch of genes which are naturally silenced during germline development. So CRISPR was used to silence these genes in the embryonic stem cells which are naturally silenced in an egg or a sperm. So this had been tried before CRISPR. Two female mice had been shown to have um, created an embryo before, but it wasn't viable. So mm. this was the next step into seeing if those genes could be silenced and if you could create a viable embryo from um, ge- genetic information from two females. And I think that's the thing you've got to remember about CRISPR is it's a tool. And it's not like we couldn't have tried doing these things previously. It's just that now with CRISPR as the tool, they're faster, more accurate and cheaper to do than, and more accessible than ever. And so it's, it's not like we couldn't have... Had 
had genetically modified babies before CRISPR. It's not that we couldn't have done these experiments. It's just that CRISPR enables it to be done um, in a more uh, in, in a in a more accessible way. So I think what it does is it heightens all the questions we've had for decades around genetic modification, because when we now have a tool that can actually make these experiments possible in a in a way that hadn't been achievable in the past. So I think I think it's really important that that the CRISPR itself isn't doing all of this. You know, these are just experiments mm. we are now choosing to do because we have the tool to do it. And I think that that's what's really changing the conversation in 2018. One of the questions around that I have, Dr Crystal, is yes, it sounds easier, cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. How much does this now move that genetic modification into kind of any lab in the world as opposed mm. to, and I don't know that, was it too hard for most labs in the past to do this and CRISPRs just meant that anyone with some basic gear can do it? Is that... Is that what's happened? Yes and no. I mean, I guess that's why the CRISPR babies came out of apparently nowhere. Mm. It's because that these experiments could be done um, in a way that was um, accessible to people. You still have to have all of the scientific knowledge and training, but that training is now also more um, available than ever. Yeah. So I think that in um, I think what it does is just heightens and accelerates um, the kinds of capabilities that have already existed. I mean, we've been able to modify genes for decades, um, but now more people can do it in a in an easier and faster and it's been reported more accurate way but you know i think we still don't truly understand mm. the yeah. actual accuracy of crispr and whether or not there are you know more effects happening in the genome than we know about when we when yes. we change one little piece we're still not really fully understanding what some of the other targeted effects are it can be quite yeah. precise but that doesn't mean it's not having an impact somewhere else exactly yeah. and so we- so yeah so i think i think the thing around crispr itself is that it, it is it is a tool and you have to remember that but it, it is yeah creating this heightened um availability for experiments that were previously thought unachievable. I learnt the phrase off-target effects this year. Nice, very good (laughs) phrase. Which to me is kind of like defining, for people who don't know, the major difference between the words precision and accuracy. Mm, Yes. Yes, thank you. It's a very appropriate uh, description actually of of that difference. Is there there any chance that these Chinese CRISPR babies are going to be awesome, good or bad? Are we going to, you know, in 20 years, are they just going to be taking over the world? I think the thing is we don't know. And I think that's, to me, that's the saddest part about the story about the CRISPR babies is that we genuinely do not know Mm. what the effects will be. And And so we cannot I'm also thinking that given that this guy's disappeared, I'm not sure when we're going to find out anything, if ever. Well, there's been a big debate and controversy about whether or not this work should be published. Um, yeah, because because yeah. the, these experiments that have been done to make the CRISPR babies are unpublished. Um, mm. Though the scientific data was spoken about and presented at a conference, there's now a big debate, well, should a scientific journal give this Air experiment um, the legitimacy yeah. of publication? But then it says, but then it speaks to your point, is that, well, if, but if we don't look at the data, then we won't know. Same so how do, you, how do you create a platform for having this discussion ethically and in an ethical and moral framework which allows us to use the data but doesn't glorify the fact that these experiments went ahead under quite dubious circumstances? Mm. And something that we have to remember is that there's more babies on the way. So there's reportedly another pregnant lady with more CRISPR-edited babies from Professor Hayes. So so, mm-hmm. you know, we need that, you know, how's that information going to be presented with him being missing? Mm. Most scientific journals require that you comply with ethical standards to submit publications. Exactly. So a debate about whether or not it should be published is saying, well, it didn't follow the requirements for the journal. Mm. Should it be published in that venue? I think the answer should be it's pretty straightforward on the journal. Now, does that mean that the journal is the only way for the scientific evidence to be shared is a different discussion, but scientific journals have a set of standards. 
if you don't adhere to them, you're not supposed to be able to publish them. Yeah, I, I would no, and a number of journals have already come out and said they won't publish the CRISPR um, baby uh, data because of that very reason. So there's a number, even some of the preprint um, mm. online uh, journals have said, no, it doesn't comply with our ethics, so we, we will not give it a platform. Mm, they certainly didn't have a pro- problem publishing a, a former Nobel Prize winner's work when he did experiments on himself for stomach ulcers. So I always bring that one up whenever this comes up because I think good for the goose, good for the gander. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And we've also seen some spectacular attractions uh, yeah. <laughs> of, uh, of very, like, I mean, do you remember arsenic DNA? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you know yeah, this big thing yeah. about, oh, we've been able to, you know, incorporate arsenic as yeah. an element into DNA's uh, backbone. And yeah. then it was just like, no, actually, those experiments were not uh, proven. Yeah. Uh, P- personally, I won't be taking my ethical guidance from the journals. <laughs> but I, but I, but, big time. But the scientists who, who help uh, do the you know, referencing and looking and, and checking of what goes into them, yes, but the journals, the companies, no, I won't be taking my ethical guidance from them at all. So, Dr. Linden, you wanted to say something? Oh, well, I was going to mention on that that the, um, I mean, yeah, no one's going to peer review those mm. studies, even if, if it does get through to a journal. No one's going to want to put their their career on the line and say, oh, I will review that. But I, I don't know why. To me, you, you can't uncork it, it. Like, you can't recork this bottle. Like, this is this work is done? Which is why I think peer review is actually really important and I've been mm. really following um, the online discussion because when the, when the scientist um, uh, presented uh, the work at the conference, uh, it was live streamed and so lots mm. of people took screen caps of the data and have been analysing it on Twitter and there's been some amazing um, unofficial peer review, like yeah. like actual online review, um, dissecting what the data actually does and doesn't mean and so I think that, that, that in some ways it's already happening, like we are, we are seeing peers commenting on each other's work in a in a very genuine um, and uh, and scholarly way outside the remit of mm. journals, and so I think if there's a way that the um, that the scientific community can harness the knowledge but not uh, legitimise the practice, I think that would be a win. Yeah, you don't want to completely ignore the the information, like because you just can't, as you say, it's out there. So, all right, uh, should we? Do you want to go, or do you want to take a go. break? I, yeah, you can go. I can go. I'll, let you go. I, I'll talk yeah. fast. I can talk fast. No, no, you don't have to talk fast. We've got like half I'll an hour for you. I'll talk real slow. The then. Are all done. <laughs> Excellent. So, a story that stayed with me this year actually also came out in July, and even though it came out in July, it's quite timely given the weather that we had in the last couple of days. We got 36 mils of rain in 15 minutes in mm-hmm. Melbourne on Friday night. I don't know if anybody was outside for that. It was pretty exciting to see some roads being flooded and mm. just waiting for that Maserati to get stuck under the West Footscray Bridge like it always seems to do <laughs> yeah, every does. time it rains. People were in kayaks. They were in blow-up um, sort of water things on the water. It was brilliant. Really? I am genuinely surprised that and, and pleased and grateful that there weren't actually any fatalities because floodwaters are re- like that are really dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, so stay safe, people. Mm. Yeah, so this study is actually quite important in relation to this. This is an as international study published in Nature Climate Change. Research is all across the world, but it included a scientist from the University of Adelaide as well. And this is just a just a beautifully simple study that has big implications. So these guys looked at a network of weather stations, rainfall stations across Australia that uh, records the rainfall continuously, right? So it's it's called a tipping bucket rain gauge. And every time it gets 0.2 of a millimetre, it tips and then it records it kind of on a graph that goes up. And so you can see how much rain you get in a minute, in five minutes, in 10 minutes, Mm, in an hour, in a day. That's the standard that is used across the world. And they looked at the um, the intense days, these really the most extreme rainfall events that you get. They looked at the wettest days and they looked at the wettest hours, right? They compared the 1960 to 1989 period and they looked at 1990 through to the present. 
all across Australia. And they found that your wettest days, uh, they are kind of getting more intense, but it's not really outside the realm of natural year-to-year kind of climate variability. Now, your wettest hours, these really extreme events that can have big impacts in lots of different ways, particularly in northern Australia, they are increasing at a massively rapid rate, much more uh, than is uh, estimated based on the basic physics of climate change. So generally, the physics says that if you increase the temperature of the atmosphere by a degree, then the atmosphere can hold about 6 to 7% more water. So you'll get 6 to 7% more rainfall. But we are seeing two to three times that amount in northern Australia and about two times the amount in southern Australia on these really extreme hourly events. And so, so this sorry, is... Sorry, are you saying two to three times the 6 to 7%? Or, yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, sorry. So sorry. we're talking about 20-odd 20, 20 percent. Yes, 20-odd yep. percent. Yeah, that's right. That's a lot. So when you look on a daily record, you don't see it, but if you finally tune it down to hour by hour, the int- that's pretty frightening yeah it's it is it's really it's really frightening and also not only because these events have big implications but because the guidelines and the standards Mm. as i understand it dr ailey might know more than i do but the the guidelines that infrastructure development is getting that you know Mm. urban planners are getting are based on this six to seven percent because that's just the standard physics and now that we you know the research looked at oh maybe it's el ninos and la ninas so there's water availability differences but no it's this it's a change in kind of how the atmosphere is behaving. Maybe it's a bit more stable because there's more water in it. And so when, mm. you know, when rain, heavy rainfall events do come, they're just so much heavier because the dynamics of what's happening so in the so air so is at a changing. critical point. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, wow. so it's, it's like it was a really clear, beautiful study, but it's got really big implications. Mm. Yeah, so th- in that respect, there's there's a lot of work going on uh, in the tropics in general, which is why I'm not surprised it's... it's um, it's stronger in northern Australia because, like you say, these these kind of circulation changes to the individual storm events, there seems to be something else going on there. Not quite the 20% mark, but certainly those kind of hourly scale rainfall events do seem to be getting more intense at that higher rate, maybe more like kind of 10 to 14% or something mm. like that, which is a really interesting part of the climate change thing that people kind of haven't worked out specifically yet. Is there is there also a, um, a change in the frequency of hail or the size of it? I think the problem with hail, and, and Dr Linden can correct me if I'm wrong, is just that the records don't exist by which we can compare. Yeah, hail is a nasty pasty yeah. when it comes. Not only, okay. from what I understand, not only observing it because it is so sporadic. A cold pasty in particular. Nasty, <laughs> that's the worst kind Gross, of pasty. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think it's, it can be quite hard to catch in models as well. Yeah. But there is a mm. citizen science app that you can get to yes. help improve that, yeah. actually. Yeah. Weather X. Weather X. Weather X. Look at this. We're just like, I know. we are building yeah. so <laughs> minds. Yeah. Look mind. it up, people. So this is a, this is a new app. Um, so it's weather without the R, but an X instead. Weather X. Oh, weather X. <laughs> weather X. That's right. So basically what you can do is download it, and if you see giant hailstones or you see heavy rain or whatever, you take a photo of it and you report it. So it's nice. like... Storm spotters, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's and then when people are going to gather that information. It's so easy to use. You don't have to register or anything. Yeah. I did it the other day. There was it's hail great. at my Gross. place, and I was like, Beep, yeah. Do it now. With Science. respect to the hail, though, one interesting thing that I learnt uh, from someone I know who used to be a forecaster, anyway. Um, the other day said on this Friday event in New South Wales there were some storms happening as well and for the first time that this person remembers the word giant hailstones were used that in warnings. Is a, so that, that might is be a, a 
um, change in it's reporting. It's an update in guidelines, yes, okay. not yeah, an update go. in hail size, yes. I believe. Yes. That's, so no, cool. that's so pretty cool. But that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Noted that. It's gotten to the point where we actually have to put yeah. giant in the guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, if I hear that, I'm thinking it's going to be the size of a basketball. <laughs> no, I think it's more like golf ball. To, <laughs> that's not that right? Golf ball balls stock standard. For the record, if you're getting as big as a basketball, that's now a comet. That's not a hail size. <laughs> that, like that's a, a new disaster movie that's what that is <laughs> yeah well we've seen a few of those I watched that film Geostorm the other oh, day the science in that is you know, just a documentary. I loved it I loved it, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it was a great it was a bit of fun great bit of fun three triple Dr. Ray's not listening much today. It's because, see, we went to a concert last night and uh, it was too loud for him and he's having trouble, aren't you? It, it was. Plus, you know, <laughs> keep on thinking about the concert. <laughs> anyway, jeez, uh, we learned some stuff during the break, though, folks. Apparently 10,000 sheep were killed by hail uh, this year. Apparently it was 400 kangaroos and 150 sheep. But Oh, okay. But that's still yeah, and I all think, from hail. And I think the sheep were goats. <laughs> what? Were they goats? Were they goats before or after Wait, the, the hail? hail turned Did the they sheep? change Did the goats, goats into sheep? It really yeah. is. In fairness, both are delicious in a curry. Uh, this, oh. this, sounds, curry. this sounds more like the game Fortnite that you've been playing with your son rather than actual reality. Uh, Chris, we don't let him play that. Um, oh, why not? It's such a social game. It's a great game for kids. I love it. Uh, Chris KP. Um, look, I just uh, just quick note here from a story that um, happened in June. I don't know whether anyone reported this on the show or not, but uh, you know how... So this has been done deliberately, but in the particular case that I, I will tell you about, it was a total accident. Um, football fans in Mexico just going nuts actually set off uh, seismometers oh, in yeah. two different parts of Mexico yeah, we did, City. We did mention you that. Did, oh, uh, well, because I got the earthquake app. <laughs> so you sensed it too. You actually saw it. Yeah. Very, very. I love See, it. Whenever you talk about this, I got to bring up the app and tell you what's going on. It does. It does make me worry, though. It's like, I mean, I think, I think that's great. I love the fact that they've done this by accident. But I also sort of think, yeah, because it was something that was easily, you know, easy to tie down to a moment. I wonder how many times we have to write the how many times there are weird things in the data. We go, you know, I'm not sure what caused that. We'll have to ignore it when it may in fact be explainable. So with respect to earthquakes, I do know that that has happened before as well at the Seahawks Stadium in Seattle. Really? So the Seahawks Stadium was a new stadium that was built. This is the NFL. Great stadium. And it's, yeah, it's a great mm. stadium, but it was built and it kind of amplifies the sound a bit. And apparently the seismometer at the University of Washington, which is kind of, you know, 5, 10 k's up the road, did register a couple of small earthquakes so associated it? with big games there. And I'm wondering whether the new Adelaide football ground which kind of has this i don't know if you've heard it it's super loud right yeah. and it kind of you know the sound really mm. gets amplified in there i don't know so is, there, mean, is there what, one in adelaide extent, Should we look out for so i'm wondering stand? to what extent so if you're if you're in a stadium you know okay for, for example stamping your feet mm. i can see why that would have an impact on oh, the ground only, only when they're playing we will rock you by queen <laughs> Thought, yeah, it's got to be, be. Yeah, it's got to be. That's my kind of data set where it actually is rhythmic. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> really cool. nice. But when, but he's suggesting that when you know, I don't know, fifty thousand people make a sound loud enough, and it and it's and it's amplified if you like, that that will in fact transmit to the ground from the air and make a signal. Well, that's what the story was. That okay. this was that it was the sound from the stadium, and I mean maybe they were stamping their feet as well. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. no idea what the almost specific like, circumstances like just, were, but. Yeah. That hmm, it, it's yeah, it's definitely happened before. Interesting. I like it, Doctor Ray. What do you got? Um, Electroaerodynamics. Hello. So uh, this was this was this year marked the first flight of a heavier than air aircraft. 
powered solely by ionized air. So these are researchers at MIT. They ionized air and created a stream of ions. It dragged along a stream of air and created enough thrust to fly a uh, 2.5 kilogram aircraft about I think it was 60 meters at five meters a second. So similar similar lengths and timescales to what the Kitty Hawk was. Of course, the Wright brothers were flying a person. They just did it with something a bit lighter. The thing is, no propellers. Silent propulsion. Mm. You couldn't hear it. Um, they think it could really transform uh, efficiency and energy impact on drones. Yeah. No, I like that one. There was also the idea that you could completely solar power it with, you know, Nothing else. Like, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And Dr. Ray, wasn't this amazing like future technology study done in a massive basketball court? Is that right? That's actually what limited the flight. Uh, <laughs> that's why it didn't go further, is it was 10 meters short of the end of the wall. And the other problem was they had to keep asking the basketball team to stop playing so they could fly the plane. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they got nothing but nerds oh. at the end of the Is that not just revenge? Oh. Isn't that revenge of the nerds? They're just begging the jocks to back off for a moment. Or we try our new plane. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, but, Jesus, so many... We could just joke about that for the rest of the show, but we won't. <laughs> Let's not. Uh, Dr. Crystal. Uh, um, well, my, my news isn't particularly um, amusing in that I think that 2018 has been a very big year for infectious diseases. And, uh, and right now there's currently an outbreak of Ebola happening in mm. the Democratic Republic of the Congo that's not getting a lot of airplay right now. Um, but there's been over 500 cases and over 300 deaths. And, um, yeah, and it's happening, happening right now and uh, is kind of still growing because um, there's a massive conflict happening at the moment in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so you have um, a situation where you, people are trying to run clinical trials comparing four different experimental treatments for Ebola in a war zone. So there's a lot of people out there who are going to be doing it tough over Christmas, but there's a lot of amazing frontline aid workers and um, uh, medical and clinical staff out there who are doing what they can. Um, you know, and it was really interesting. I read an article by the head of the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust is... Um, a big uh, medical research foundation in the UK who in his very uh, British and understated way sort of said clinical trials are complex, uh, try running one in a complex zone <laughs> and mm. it's just like, mm. yeah um, so yeah, so there's, there's a lot happening but closer to home um, Melbourne itself has also been ex- experiencing an outbreak of infectious disease, um, the Beruli ulcer, also known as the Bansdale ulcer, is a flesh-eating bacteria that has been present on the um, Mornington Peninsula and the Bellarine Coast um, and now we've had some reported cases in um, the inner, sub, well, inner sort of outer western uh, suburbs of Melbourne. There's been about 163 cases to date caused by uh, mycobacteria ulcerans. Which How do is, I avoid it? Well, the, the, <laughs> the scary answer is we don't know because we're actually not sure how it's transmitted. It's suspected to be transmitted by mosquitoes, um, but they're not really sure what the reservoir for the, mos- the, ski- mos- the mosquitoes are getting it from. They might be getting it from possums or they might be getting it from other... Um, animal sources and then transmitting it to humans but people don't know so I would say over the Christmas holiday break people um, avoid being bitten by mosquitoes please um, use uh, whatever uh, repellents that are needed and please go for ones that are clinically and scientifically validated citronella candles are probably not going to repel mosquitoes in the way that you might want them to Um, avoid being bitten and if you do have any infected mosquito bites that aren't healing particularly on young children please get them seen Mm -hmm. to as soon as possible and always seek second opinions um, because uh, this uh, Beruli ulcer can actually uh, lead to quite dis- disabling, um, disfiguring, you know, in terms of infect- infecting people's joints and arms. And, yeah, just flesh-eating bacteria, not something you want for Christmas. <laughs> you hear that? It freaks me out. Yeah, uh, Chris K.P. is going to be walking down the street wearing a net. Suit of armour. Yeah, absolutely. Dr Ailey. 
Well, after that pleasant news <laughs> for the end of the year, real pick-me-up. Um, anyway, no, I'm going to... Uh, my second story is on uh, earliest animal life, actually. So now we're going from, you know, stay safe this summer to kind of 550 million years ago. So these, uh, this story was about uh, a fossil uh, called Dickinsonia. And these things are found around the world. They're found in Russia. They're found outside Adelaide, actually, as well. Um, and they're kind of... People never knew what they were. They were these kind of little... Um, pretty shell-like fossils. Slater-like. Yeah, yeah, trilobite kind of, you know. But nobody was ever sure what they were. Were they an animal? Were they a fungus? Mm. Were they a plant? And, I mean, look, life existed at this point, um, but it was kind of, you know, there were warm, shallow seas. There were, you know, these microbial mats. So these just mats of stuff not <laughs> doing anything Matter. sitting yeah. on yeah. the bottom of the ocean like yep. you know they weren't they weren't doing anything and it wasn't until this you know cambrian explosion that 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 animal life really kind of started to come to the fore and these Dickinsonia seem to be a bit earlier than that um and so these researchers from anu uh this i think was again published back in i think it was may um they went to the the far remote russia not sure why they didn't go to South Australia, but that's okay. Uh, they went to Russia, the back blocks of Russia, and they dug up a few of these Dickinsonia from the sandstone there, battled a lot of mosquitoes, I'm told, and um, and bears. I don't know if they actually battled bears. the bears, but yeah. there were there were bears in the area. Okay, um, just makes it makes them sound tougher. I don't yeah, you've got to make scientists sound. Well, you're, hold, you're holding the bear with that's one right. hand while you're swatting the mosquito right. with the other. <laughs> that's right, yeah. and digging out this sandstone dig, yeah. Dickinsonia. Yeah. Anyway, um, so after much speculation, like this this question of these Dickinsonia has been going on for like 75 years or something since they were first discovered mm. and people are like what are they and people have looked at the structure which is often what you do with paleontology look at the structure mm. to try and work out what it is but this time what these researchers did was they actually kind of dug into the fossil itself and tried to look at the structure inside the fossil itself and so what they did was look for uh what the 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 actual thing must have been made of and what they found was that it was full of cholesterol it was full of fats and so they looked at inside the fossil well kind of as part of the the inside splice of the the fossil and then they looked at the surrounding rock and what they found was that something like 90 percent of inside the fossil was these um cholesterol molecules and that's consistent with animals Mm. it's not consistent with plants it's not consistent with fungi it's consistent Mm. with animals and so basically they this kind of question has now effectively been answered and this dickinsonia is in fact one of the earliest forms of evidence for animal life mm. on Earth. So that That's was pretty cool. cool. How, does done by how does cholesterol manifest in a fossil? Like, I don't know. It? They didn't. The, the the stories didn't quite elucidate mm-hmm. that. Um, I think it's probably to do with the, the structure of yeah. you know, the microstructures of the molecules wow. or something like that. Hey, different yeah. topic. Guess what happened in July here in Australia? Lots of things, apparently. Well, actually, one, <laughs> one, one really important thing. We became one of the nations with the space agency. Oh, hey. oh yeah. yeah! Yeah, chalk that one up. And, we may and, have been second convenient, last, convenient, but still. Well, conveniently, they've now situated it not in Russia. Uh, yeah. That was the first choice. Yeah. No, Adelaide. Adelaide. It's got, Adelaide. got a noisy footy oval. It's yeah. got yeah. fatty animal yeah. fossils. And now it's got a space <laughs> agency. Yeah. Well, they got some. You know, they're not building Well, there was submarines. a rocket test site in South Australia yeah. too, right? Woman yeah, around yeah, that yeah, area, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It seems like the natural right? fit, right? Yeah, and there's plenty of uranium there if you need it for yeah. fuel. <laughs> moving on, Dr Laura. 
Well, one story that really struck me this year, because I just love what scientists get up to. Um, a bunch of scientists gave octopuses ex ecstasy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. this. That never gets old. It just doesn't get old, does it? Because, of course, octopuses are terrifying, and they are completely antisocial. Other than mm. the three minutes that it takes them to reproduce, if you put them together, they will kill each other. Yeah. And so scientists wanted to determine whether, say, ecstasy or MDMA, it's known, we know the effects that it has on humans, it makes people loved up, it releases serotonin scientists wanted to decide whether there was commonality in brain mechanisms and if this would work on a really antisocial animal mm. so they did an experiment where they put octopuses in a tank together and of course they will attack each other if you do this mm. so one was put under a flower pot so they would be safe watch these these octopuses didn't interact at all and then they took them out, they gave them liquefied MDMA, and they would take this up through their gills, and then they put them back in the tank together. And I love the quote from the lead author of the study, which was, it was led out of John Hopkins by Professor Dolan, who said, quote, it definitely looked like the octopuses were high. The octopus, the octopus outside of the flower pot started hugging the flower pot, started hugging the walls. This is hilarious, so I actually, right? Yeah, I, when, I, when I first read this, that was my first thought, was that, that E will tend to make you very affectionate. And, and how good is that when you've got eight limbs? I just reckon that's a I great love, choice. I love you. I love you eight times. Flower pot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those questions as well about, like, why? Why? <laughs> why are you doing that? Is it because deep down, as a scientist, you're secretly no. afraid of the cephalopod overlords no, no, no. and you're like, how can we make them less angry? It might be an underlying... Uh, <laughs> I think you've got the wrong question. The real question is, why not? <laughs> well, yeah. yes, that's... I mean, come on. Octopuses are just awesome anyway. And wasn't there a paper that came out about some... I almost used a bad word there. Someone who was uh, cerebrally challenged uh, thought they were al representing alien... An alien species that had come to Earth. There was some. Yeah, that was a that. story that I yeah, did. And, yeah, um, I remember yeah that. there was a paper that came out yeah. in some evolutionary yeah, biology yeah. journal. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. That was, that was basically saying that octopuses are aliens that yeah, have come because they don't match up the rest of the. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's completely been debunked and it, it's so totally wrong. And <laughs> we were wondering how the editor didn't read that paper yeah. before they published. <laughs> At least the yeah the last two. Well, they were clearly on ecstasy. Or but yeah, cephalopod overlords. That's that's what that was all about. Hi, loving cephalopod overlords now. <laughs> time, to, time to try it on turtles. Three. Triple. Ah. It's hard to shut down this uh, this, this conversation during the breaks today. <laughs> You're saying something's feral, Ailey? I think we've broken no, someone. No, it's terrible. It's fine. No, we won't discuss it. We won't discuss it now. Uh, the entire break was spent with us talking about Christmas decorations that look like um, genitalia. Mm. Mm. Which is uh, what scientists do during the break. Don't Google it. <laughs> no, no, do. do ideally no. on a work device. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, hey, one, one quick thing I wanted to mention uh, in terms of what happened this year, and I didn't think this would happen for a long time because we did a lot on this earlier, but uh, the first person in the world to be killed by a driverless car happened mm. this year. So uh, Elaine Hertzberg, 49, in Phoenix, was killed by an Uber vehicle. Actually had an Uber driver in it, but it was in self-driving mode at the time. And apparently it classified, when they did the sort of autopsy of the car, which I suspect means pulling it apart, it classified her as an unknown object, which is like, really? It, well, didn't know well, personally. Why don't you just avoid the unknown object regardless yeah. of what yeah. it is? I don't know what it is. Maybe stop? <laughs> maybe, maybe stop. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, I thought it'd be a long time before this happened. But anyway, a few thank yous before we uh, hand over to Edith, who will very rapidly uh, hand over to one of the great summer fills that's occurring um, today. 
Um, but a few things we wanted to mention. First of all, a huge thank you to the Triple R staff. They've been really helpful this year. Um, in particular, Elizabeth, who helps me get all the guests, and we've had uh, some 115-odd guests on the show this year, which uh, is a bit of work, and Elizabeth's a champ at doing that. Uh, the radiotherapy team for pretty much finishing on time every week, except for this week, but they've been great. They're, uh, and they're always so great at introing us, which we appreciate. Um, a huge thank you to the team that does our podcasting, led by uh, Dr. Fiona, who used to be on the show years ago, but now she coordinates our podcasting for us still, and they put their time into getting that podcast up within a couple of days of us broadcasting every week and I know we get a lot of listeners from around the world as a result of that. Hi podcast listeners. We love you podcast people. Uh, to all the guests that have come in in particular for the show this year there's been a huge number and they've come from all of our medical research institutes from our universities from our other research institutes and a particular thanks to I mean we've had some great ones from La Trobe University in particular this year and Deakin and Swinburne um, and other universities they've, they've all really I've just been overwhelmed by the number of people who contact us to come on the show and a huge apology to all those who we haven't had space for but um, we tend to cap out at about three guests a week and it's great that so many people want to come on the show and it's great that we have so many young researchers on the show um, because this is often their first uh, run into the media which is great and uh, a huge thank you to all the listeners who supported Triple uh, R in general and our show during the Radiothon. We had a great year this year and it was really appreciated. Every year we're always a bit gobsmacked by just how many people put so much money into Triple into R because it keeps the station running and we love that. To the great team that we have here, uh, Chris, Ray, Crystal, Ailey, Laura, Lyndon. God, these L's are getting me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Liv, another L. Uh, to Jen, to... Um, Ewan and to who am I missing? Catherine, who have all put in huge efforts this year uh, to broadcast with us every week. Um, you don't see the work that goes behind uh, what they do, folks, but it's um, many hours of effort, which uh, is very much appreciated by me because it's hours that I don't have to do. And frankly, um, we have some of the best broadcasters of science in the country, in my opinion, on this show. And um, Yeah, anyway, I hope you agree with that. So a big thank you from us. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to another year of Einstein and Go-Go. We'll definitely be back next year. We're not not going anywhere. But we're taking a bit of a break. And uh, until then, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. They have to hand over to someone else very quickly. But uh, have a great summer. Stay safe. And uh, if you're into the Christmas mood, good luck with that too. We'll see you in 2019. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.